Daily Journal is very pleased to bring you not only this podcast, but also the opportunity to receive California CLE credit for having listened to it. If you'd like to receive one hour of participatory CLE credit for having tuned into this program, it's very easy to do. Just go to our website, www.dailyjournal.com. Go to our podcast library and find this episode. There you'll find a link to a short true-false test. Once you've taken that, one hour of participatory credit can be yours for a very nominal fee. We do appreciate folks that take the opportunity to receive this CLE credit as it helps us continue to offer this podcast to you outside of our usual paywall. In addition to CLE credit for this podcast, we have a full library of podcasts that have aired previous dates, and those all have CLE tests attached to them as well. And also, in the Daily Newspaper, we have a range of CLE offerings as well, many attached to prospective columns written by our attorney subscribers. We hope you'll take the opportunity to claim the CLE credit that the Daily Journal has to offer. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and host for the Daily Journal podcast. And in today's podcast, we will be looking at and dealing with some of the most controversial policy issues in California today, land use, housing, climate change. We will be looking at it from the standpoint of some of the interesting legal issues that have been raised in some of the most important, even if little known, cases in California. Those cases have been filed on behalf of a client whom we will hear about, called the 200, represented by Jennifer Hernandez of Holland and Knight. And those cases raise the basic issues, legal issues, about current policies in California dealing with those interconnected issues. They raise issues not just statutorily, but very importantly, constitutional issues as well. We'll start first talking with Jennifer Hernandez, then hear about her client, the 200, and then review some of the remarkable cases that have been filed. Jennifer Hernandez, how are you? I'm very fine. Thank you so much, Howard. It's a pleasure to have you on with us. Tell us, as we start, something about yourself and your practice and your environmental law practice. Sure. Well, thanks very much. Um, so I am a product of Pittsburgh, California, a very industrial town on the east side of the Bay Area. My father and both grandfathers worked at U.S. Steel for the duration of their careers, and I was fortunate enough to be given um, a very full-ride scholarship, first to Harvard undergrad and then to Stanford Law School. And I commenced my legal career in 1984 doing environmental and ultimately a combination of environmental and land use laws. Um, our family's fortune took a very significant turn. Uh, my first year in practice when in early 1985 at the age of 56, my dad was permanently laid off from his uh, job, which he'd held since high school. Um, and both for my long-widowed uh, grandmothers, as well as my parents uh, and siblings, the key to avoidance of poverty and destitution was the fact that they owned their homes. Um, they had um, saved, they had bought, they had lived frugally, and um, home ownership was a pivot point uh, economically uh, for them and for uh, my generation and, uh, and that of my son and nephews and nieces. Home ownership is a really foundational issue, as is environmental protection and sound land use policy. Um, I've been an environmentalist for my entire life, uh, wanted to do environmental law following exposure to high levels of pollution in Pittsburgh, dirty air, smelly and uh, filthy water, uh, much of which has been cleaned up, um, but also natural uh, areas. Uh, we, we have our son uh, holding now 100 junior ranger badges from all the national parks we uh, made him come to with us. So that's my background, and I have used that environmental and land use 
legal expertise um, as a pro bono lawyer for civil rights groups over the years, um, starting about 20 years ago, when we were trying to crack the code and make sure that brownfield cleanups of former industrial lands happened in low-income as well as high-wealth communities. And that was uh, an effort that was ultimately successful, although ran into some pretty tough politics by what it turned out to be unexpectedly strong opposition from uh, within the environmental community to the cleanup and, and reuse of these locations, which were being cleaned up and reused regularly in wealthier locations. And you but we now- prevailed, and uh, I was working with the Green Lighting Institute and others in that civil rights um, uh, effort, um, and I'll just finish with got a, an award um, from Willie Brown for being a warrior on the brownfield, um, and so uh, there's a date in October uh, that is the Jennifer Hernandez date uh, in San Francisco. Congratulations. Uh, you Thank know, you. <laughs> uh, Gandhi said the best kind of politics is when you're solving public problems by dealing with the issues that you've seen in your own life and the problems of your own life. And you, you've demonstrated this emotional commitment uh, to these issues. How, how long have you been at Holland the Night uh, practicing yeah. there? Uh, we've been here 15 years. Uh, we have a large land use and environmental law group, which I lead here. Tell us about your client, the 200. What is that organization and, and who is in it? Sure. So the 200 uh, began without me uh, right after the Great Recession when some of the uh, really leading civil rights warriors in California uh, uh, many of whom had retired, uh, had watched with dismay during the Great Recession as first predatory lending and then predatory foreclosure practices completely wiped out home ownership gains that minority community members had made uh, since the civil rights law uh, era began in the late 60s. Uh, and the wipeout of home equity in uh, in minority communities in California um, uh, during the Great Recession was of great concern. And these were folks who had spent their careers fighting for uh, civil rights and, um, frankly, equal access to home ownership um, based on overcoming decades of redlining practices, where redlining is a term uh, used to identify government activities uh, intentionally depriving minorities of, uh, of the same home ownership opportunities that white families enjoyed. Members of the 200 um, included, founding members of the 200 included the founder of uh, Latino Issues Forum, as well as the Greenlining Institute, John Gamboa, current co-chair of the Greenlining Institute board, uh, Robert Apodaca, and uh, former uh, Latino caucus uh, leader and assemblyman, as well as uh, superintendent of both Oakland and San Jose school districts, Joe Cotto, uh, and uh, uh, a true national leader, uh, Herman Gallegos, who co-founded La Raza nationally. Um, we also have a, uh, a wonderful um, group of additional leaders, uh, including um, uh, leaders from uh, from non-minority communities uh, like Don Parada and uh, Sonny McBeath. Uh, Don was the head of the state senate uh, and represented Oakland. Uh, Sonny, apart from being my first employer, uh, was also housing secretary for uh, the governor um, a few years ago. Um, we also have Michael Schellenberger, who was uh, Time Magazine's Man of the Year, and then a whole host of uh, regional leaders um, uh, that is detailed in the complaint, and I won't go through in great detail now. But these are incredible people and, uh, and true leaders uh, 
civil rights leaders. And what is the what cases did you first file on behalf of your client, the 200? Well, the group had been working to identify obstacles to home ownership in the new era post-recession and have had identified a couple of main obstacles. One was uh, constraints on production of new housing, and in particular, the um, use of the California Environmental Quality Act for non-environmental purposes, either just as um, strict redlining exclusionary tools by NIMBYs uh, or sometimes as economic leverage tools by others. But CEQA lawsuit threats and CEQA lawsuits were something the group identified uh, and was the reason they got in touch with me based on my expertise, along with some other issues like prohibitive costs to insure home ownership products like condos where um, construction defect insurance runs about three times higher than apartments. So that's when we got together um, and we were making some progress. And then really shockingly, um, the California Air Resources Board in the current scoping plan, which lays out the roadmap for reducing greenhouse gas in California, actually proposed to uh, expand the reach of CEQA in a way that increased housing costs and increased litigation risks. And this is during a housing crisis and a housing crisis that has resulted in both homelessness and absolute unattainability uh, in terms of home ownership, both disparately affecting minority Californians. And there was no even quantified basis for uh, including um, uh, the CEQA expansion in the scoping plan. The scoping plan also uh, did something that the legislature had repeatedly rejected, which is mandating a reduction in the use of cars and trucks. And uh, this was a reduction mandated even for all electric trucks or cars, and it was called vehicle miles traveled. And the um, uh, huge uh, and very well-known fact uh, of vehicle miles traveled is that the most vehicle miles traveled are those by workers who can't afford to live closer to their jobs, and those are minority workers uh, disproportionately that have the longest commutes, super commutes of 90 minutes or more each day. And so a vehicle mile travel reduction mandate would translate it into the cost of required mitigation or fees for housing um, meant that 50 to even $400,000 more fees would be attached to each new housing unit in an attempt to have people live in these high-rise rentals, which are incredibly costly to build and a normal working family can afford. Again, not even quantified as uh, a measurable part of um, California's climate commitment. Now, can I ask you, you pardon me for interrupting, but I want to focus this if I can, because these are tremendously important issues, and you have focused these in in a lawsuit first in Fresno involving the Air Resources Board scoping plan, and also in lawsuits then in Sacramento and in San Bernardino. Let's start with the Fresno lawsuit, because I know what has happened there is some of the things you're talking about alleged in the complaint were met by demur and motion to dismiss, and the court has overruled that. So a lot of these things are at issue. And one of the things you claim that alleged in the Fresno case was that some of these policies were unconstitutional in terms of violating due process and equal protection, and the court has overruled the demur to that. What are the constitutional issues here that are now factually at issue in the Fresno case? Sure. So uh, in the Fresno case, we challenged the CARB scoping plan. This is their roadmap for reducing greenhouse gas in California with respect to four measures in the scoping plan that disparately affect housing, 
and then within that housing category, make it more expensive to build and easier to sue and block housing, uh, as well as this vehicle mile traveled uh, reduction mandate. So that's what we're challenging. And the constitutional, uh, as well as Fair Housing Act civil rights claims against CARB are that CARB made an intentional decision to pick greenhouse gas reduction measures that disparately affect minority Californians in the arena, for example, of housing. And it is possible, of course, for CARB to identify and pursue greenhouse gas reduction measures as part of California's war on climate change. It's unconstitutional, as well as a violation of civil rights laws, for CARB to decide to make minority housing and minority communities generally collateral damage in California's war on climate change. And what I mean by that is airplanes, to pick an example, forest fires, to pick another example, even furniture purchases, let alone second, third, and fifth home purchases, are all much more intense greenhouse gas reduction activities than the simple act of driving a car to a house you can afford to buy. Far more consequential in terms of greenhouse gas reductions are these uh, attributes, the catastrophic fires, as well as buying activities um, by the very wealthy that would and could reduce greenhouse gas much, much more effectively and fairly than making housing more expensive and easier to block. Uh, in a housing crisis. The California Attorney General's office, much to our surprise, attempted to dismiss the case twice. Uh, All of the civil rights claims as well as constitutional claims, uh, they attempted to dismiss in two sequential demurs in which, among other things, they argued it was entirely constitutional for CARB to engage in racially discriminatory housing practices because housing was not constitutionally protected. Will you say that again? I mean, I think that's, I don't want to just let that comment pass by, but the attorney general demurred. And would you, I think it's important to hear it clearly so we can, we can focus on what some of the issues are here. What was the attorney general's position again on the constitutional issue with regard to housing and the other allegations? So on the constitutional issue in particular, Howard, The attorney general argued in writing and in oral argument that it was constitutional for CARB to adopt racially discriminatory housing policies because housing was not itself a constitutionally protected class of activity. And the court overruled the demurrer, and so it is now at issue. I mean, ultimately, procedurally, this will be an opportunity to factually test these assertions in this trial if it goes forward, will it not? It absolutely will. And I think it's important to also note that in that CARB lawsuit, we sought rescission of the four anti-housing measures because there were plenty of other greenhouse gas reduction opportunities. But we also demanded that CARB do a ranking that is transparent on who is affected by CARB's measures, by CARB's ideas on what to do with greenhouse gas reduction, who's affected, what's it going to cost, and how effective is it? And the reason that's so important is because, as President Obama reported, we stripped 99% of the tailpipe emissions from cars that cause smog out of those tailpipes under the Clean Air Act with this transparent and open rulemaking process. And it took a while, but we got there, 
and smog, as you and I experienced it as a child, is just not the issue it once was. We know how to reduce gas. We didn't, in 1972, say, we're going to end home ownership. We're going to make it impossible for people to buy a home. Those are not legitimate goals if your goal is to reduce something that comes out of the tailpipe. And that is what CARB is supposed to be doing, greenhouse gas reduction, and instead is pursuing this, frankly, quite racist anti-housing and anti-minority agenda. Will any of these factual issues, if this finally goes to trial, will any of them go to a jury or will this all be decided by a judge under your complaint? Uh, They should all be decided by a judge under our complaint, but it's very also important and shocking to recognize the California Attorney General and the California Air Resources Board have colluded in denying us access to the very records, public records, that CARB and other agencies have and have declined to make public as to why it is they thought it was in fact legal, let alone effective, to worsen the housing crisis worsen the public, the poverty crisis, worsen the homelessness crisis, all under the name of climate change. Uh, Their refusal to produce those documents caused us to file a second lawsuit because other agencies were also involved with CARB under the Brown administration in inflicting this collateral damage uh, in its war on climate on California's minority communities. And those uh, documents, which were withheld, caused us to file a second lawsuit, ultimately moved to Sacramento um, after a near year of delay uh, as part of the delay tactics being pursued by the Attorney General's office uh, to get access to those documents, which are being withheld, concealed. And then uh, the third lawsuit, just to finish the trio, um, happened in response to literally in the closing hours of the Brown administration, uh, the Brown administration's decision to uh, impose this vehicle mile traveled reduction regime and a couple other anti-housing measures, especially anti-housing measures that benefit wealthier, whiter um, communities uh, through the California Environmental Quality Act. So although the 200 had identified CEQA as a major problem in housing, the Brown administration's response at the environmental agency level has been to expand CEQA, a shocking and, frankly, uh, pretty hostile um, agenda when it comes to homeownership and minority community housing needs. One of the things I want to emphasize for our listeners is we all know that lawsuits are filed all the time. Uh, making very generalized allegations. The reason we're talking about this with Jennifer Hernandez and the reason this is so significant is because, especially in the Fresno case, these are not just allegations anymore. The case has proceeded to be at issue, which means that outside, unlike the political arena, where all sorts of wild statements and defenses can be made, the issues that are being raised in the Fresno case, and I think that ultimately will also be raised in the San Bernardino and and Sacramento cases, will permit the courts in a legal proceeding to look at the underlying factual basis of what is being said to be at issue. What works for climate change? What has impact on housing? What violates civil rights? These are not just discussions in the political arena, and that's why it's important for this podcast, that's why it's important for lawyers, because all these things that have been the subject of extensive political debate will ultimately be put to the test of evidence uh, in the courts of California, and it will be decided by the rules that we know of evidence, the rules of evidence including expert witness rules, 
So this will all be tested in court. It has never been tested in court at this level before with this kind of expertise and, and this kind of client dealing with these fundamental issues. And that's why we're talking about this in this legal, in this legal context. Uh, and in the lawsuit, you, you talk about, again, the factual things that will be tested, the impact of the policies of uh, promoting condominium development uh, near uh, transportation hubs as whether, in fact, that will reduce vehicle miles travel, what its impact will be on, on on air pollution and climate change. You talk about some of those allegations as well? Sure. So uh, a cornerstone of the agenda that uh, CARB is attempting to enforce uh, is to concentrate most of the 3.5 million new units of housing that the state needs, according to the governor, uh, in existing neighborhoods uh, located near high-frequency transit service. Um, the easiest examples to think about are neighborhoods near metro stations, for example, in L.A. And if you look at where those neighborhoods are, um, because of longstanding resistance to public transit in wealthier and whiter communities, newer systems like metro tended to be located in, in, in areas that were possibly unable politically uh, to resist them uh, in the same way that places like Beverly Hills resisted them. So we have already uh, a number of transit locations that are historic minority neighborhoods. The same is true in Northern California, although we frankly have had in the Bay Area a diaspora of minorities already to outlying areas from locations like West Oakland. Uh, which are served by BART. In any event, by concentrating uh, these very, very high-density redevelopment visions in uh, uh, these transit neighborhoods, in a number of cases, uh, what that really calls for is the wipeout of existing uh, residents and businesses. And we've all seen this movie before. It was called Redevelopment, uh, and it was also called Redlining. Um, and, uh, And what has happened is... Um, displacement. And it's not to say we don't need housing, and it's not to say we shouldn't have high-density housing, um, but this singular focus on existing transit locations uh, is problematic, and it's problematic because of its racially disparate effects. It's also very, very problematic as the housing solution. If you were to set out to think about how to build the most expensive housing imaginable, you would pick land that is already developed, so it's more expensive to buy. You would pick infrastructure that's older and sized for a different scale of development, so you have to replace, which is more expensive than building new. And you would pick steel-framed high-rise and mid-rise buildings which are comprised of incredibly costly systems and architectural features, including steel framing and a lot more cement, which has the by far highest construction cost per square feet of any kind of housing we know how to build. So rather than, say, at the end of World War II, recognizing the huge need for a spate of new housing uh, uh, to accommodate returning servicemen and their family, which resulted in two-story wood-framed buildings that may not have been the best housing, but they were the housing that was immediately available and affordable and ultimately has been, uh, by and large, now replaced. That kind of housing, two- and three-story, four-story, wood-framed, which fits better into existing communities and is also a lot more affordable, 
is why we have so many single-family homes, townhomes, and uh, smaller-scale housing. That's what's affordable. What isn't affordable is these high-rises. And when we start building high-rises or even mid-rises um, uh, up to California's very stringent building codes, we get to per-apartment costs of $750,000 or more. And we cannot, as a society or as a bunch of people needing housing, afford $750,000 for a one-bedroom apartment. And that is what our cost structure is for the kind of housing that the uh, climate agencies want to have built. What's happened? Well, what's happened is what's been criticized, which is we have um, what are called luxury or market rate um, high rises, uh, and there's an absolute market for this. You know, folks who can afford to spend four or five thousand dollars a month in rent do exist. It's a very small slice of the market. Uh, it isn't affordable to most working families. Uh, it certainly isn't affordable to working families who uh, make anything like the median income. And so we have prescribed under the rubric of climate a form of housing that is simply not affordable. And then we've assumed that because people are living next to a metro station, they're not going to ride their car. And they may not own a car. They may just Uber. But it's very, very unlikely that they're going to take the bus. People who spend $4,000 a month in rent do not take the bus. They may bicycle, and some of the bicycles that we see now are $5,000. And there's a great editorial, or not editorial, news story in the uh, San Francisco Chronicle. What's white, male, and five feet wide? And the answer is a bike lane, which is in San Francisco mostly used by white males earning in households $250,000 or more. Bike lanes are great. Don't get me wrong, but they're not transportation solutions for most people. The vast majority of people in California, like other Western states, require access to cars. Car access for getting kids to school, for getting to medical attention, to, for getting to work, is absolutely critical. And decades of poverty studies have showed us this. And not just poverty studies, but repeated stories specific to California have shown a huge decrease in transit ridership, even as billions of dollars are spent on transit. And we have the data, we know the data, in some of the most densely populated areas in the country. And by the way, the LA metro area has a higher population density than even the New York metropolitan area. And what happens in some of the most densely populated areas in LA, like the gateway cities next to Long Beach, we have two bus boardings per acre each morning. I don't mind the bus, but it's not the transportation technology that's going to take us through this century. And the idea that locating people in these very high-cost buildings, making sure they don't have a car, and then depending on the bus getting them to work is what this whole regime and it's almost dogma because it's not supported by facts, is about. When I say it's not supported by facts, it's important to recognize I'm not speaking hyperbolically. In our San Bernardino case, for example, the state, in its decision to require vehicle mile traveled reductions, proudly claimed that you could reduce vehicle miles traveled, reduce the amount people drive, and not mess up the economy. And they have data showing that as of 2010, that was true. Vehicle miles 
dropped in 2010, and the economy was still more or less flat. Oh, it wasn't actually more or less flat. It was the depth of the recession. We had people not working, hence not driving. What's happened since then? Vehicle miles traveled has exploded, most dominantly for uh, Latino and African-American workers, less. There is a, a racial group for which vehicle miles traveled has dropped some. It's whites. It's not because they're riding the bus. It's because they can work from home. People I have imp- to be at their job on time to be paid can't work from home. They have to have a transportation system that works, and that has been ever cleaner cars. What I want to emphasize here in terms, again, of of why it's important to focus on this. This is not an issue about the reality of climate change. There's no challenge here to the fact that there is climate change that must be dealt with. The challenge is, and based on the facts the lawsuits allege and will be at issue, is that some of the policies that the state has used under the reason of climate change, to promote climate change, given a range of choices that the policies fall disproportionately and in many cases unconstitutionally on minority and disadvantaged groups, and that that has been a conscious choice in terms of its effect of policy. It's important to realize that that's the way the issue is being framed. The issue is not denying climate change. The issue is not that something things do in fact have to be done about climate change. The issue that's being raised by the lawsuits and why they are so significant is they are saying that choices have been made that force the cost of fighting climate change disproportionately on disfavored groups and therefore raise those very serious issues. You've also chosen, uh, Jennifer, to file the lawsuits uh, not in major metropolitan areas in Los Angeles or San Francisco, but in Fresno, and then the second one in Fresno that went up to Sacramento, and finally in San Bernardino. Was it a conscious choice to not file in L.A. or San Francisco, but instead to file in those areas where it would go to the 5th and 3rd District Courts of Appeal and the Riverside Court of Appeal instead of the L.A. and San Francisco courts? So I think it's fair to say that what we tried to do was file the lawsuits where the harm has been the greatest. So San Francisco is the mother load, if you will, the source of a lot of the climate dogma that uh, there should be housing limited to existing urbanized uh, uh, areas. It should be redevelopment. It should be high density. It should be near bus stops or transit stops. And that's what our future should be like. California overall is not all that comfortable, although increasingly comfortable with that agenda uh, to some extent or another, but it's been the political reality in the Bay Area for now more than a decade. The result of that political reality is an explosion of housing in the Central Valley. Hundreds of thousands of people now commute into the Bay Area because they can't afford housing, which frankly hasn't even been built at scale in the Bay Area, largely because no one can afford to pay $4,000 a month in rent for a one-bedroom apartment in Santa Rosa or Vallejo. It's a crazy idea. So we haven't built that kind of housing, even in the Bay Area, with 10 years of trying and more income than the world has seen in centuries. We have an incredible wealth pocket here. But the Central Valley is now full of Bay Area workers 
who can't afford to spend more on housing than people who live in the Central Valley and work there at Central Valley wages. The result has been an explosion of super commuters, but also dislocation of longtime Central Valley residents from their own communities because housing has gotten too expensive for them. The same is true in areas like Salinas. So we didn't want to fight about whether $4,000 a month one-to-bedroom apartments were or were not reasonable in the city of San Francisco. It's what we're building. It's what people can afford, or at least some people can afford, in an increasingly, frankly, less racially diverse city. We wanted to file lawsuits where people are receiving these uh, policies, even as we spoke. And so the Central Valley was the the place for us to file the CARB lawsuit um, because it was where the harm was being felt. San Bernardino was the place for us to file the VMT lawsuit. 98% of San Bernardino County families have to drive. They have no other option. And I question whether it should be even higher. And the County Board of Supervisors in San Bernardino said, we can't reduce VMT vehicle miles traveled. We can't beyond the 4% or whatever small amount um, that we do now as a matter of course, but not the 15%, let alone the absolutely no increase in VMT that uh, uh, the CEQA expansions demand. So for us, San Bernardino was perfect as a place of controversy that is currently existing and harm that is currently existing with respect to vehicle miles traveled. We also have terrific data from the Southern California Association of Governments that show us vehicle miles traveled per household, income per household, housing costs per household. And so, for example, we know minority population, African-American, Latino in Santa uh, Santa Monica is about 20%. It's nearly 80% in San Bernardino. This is a racial dispersion uh, that's replicated in the Bay Area uh, that tracks the cost of housing. And so when you have a policy that penalizes drivers, what you're doing is making the housing that they can afford even less affordable. And then what happens from a greenhouse gas perspective is that people move. And where do they move? Texas, Arizona, and Nevada are the top destination for Californians. And what happens in those states? Per capita, per person, greenhouse gas emissions double or nearly triple. So by not accommodating housing and people in California and forcing people to go to where they can still afford housing, we're actually California's policy is increasing global greenhouse gas. That is entirely antithetical to any effort that's serious in the war on climate change. California have, is undermining its own war. I have heard people, some people uh, describe uh, the current emphasis on building high-rises near, uh, near transportation hubs as the ni- a 19th century solution to a 21st century problem. So moving to the alternative, because what people say when they hear what you are saying is, uh, this is what the state has chosen as its climate change and, and housing policy. Moving aside from the law, because I think this will become an important part of the discussion, what other policies could the state enact that would promote housing for people who need it? and still lead to climate change reduction without having the disparate effect on the communities you've talked about? So I think it's first important to recognize what the state means in the statement you just made, uh, Howard, because the legislature repeatedly rejected any mandatory reductions in vehicle miles traveled. 
the legislature has repeatedly attempted to end CEQA litigation abuse against housing. The legislature wants more housing. The governor, current governor, says he wants more housing. His agencies, really based on the work done during the Brown administration, are working against a pro-housing agenda, certainly working against any form of non-discriminatory home ownership agenda um, by expanding CEQA and requiring VMT reductions. In terms of alternatives, um, there's a website that uh, the California Air Resources Board maintains that purports to be the all capital T-H-E in their own documents and website, uh, most accurate carbon calculator, GHG, greenhouse gas emission uh, emission calculator um, available. And it attempts to assign by income level the amount of greenhouse gas a household or a person is expected to produce over the course of a year. Wealthy people, which started, I think, just $110,000 per household in the carb calculator, have much higher greenhouse gas uh, emissions uh, per capita than poorer people. And what's held constant across the board uh, on wealth are things like food and housing and transportation. What's different is things like luxury goods, plane trips uh, as part of vacation or business travel, and other activities that the wealthy but not the working class and middle class can engage in, let alone the the, the poorest among us. Let's talk uh, about let's talk about housing policy as such. If the the need is to increase housing, we clearly all know that. We know the disparity between the need for housing and the, and the amount that's being built. What is the alternative that would permit housing sure, at a cost uh, that can be you, Three quick examples. Uh, so uh, with the retail revolution, there isn't um, a city in the state that doesn't have underutilized retail surface parked space. The same is true for commercial space, which gets repurposed um, periodically. Those locations tend to be on decent sized streets and have existing infrastructure. And with the right scale, townhomes, three-story, even four-story apartments, but townhomes and condos of a much smaller uh, wood-framed scale uh, are an immediate and very much consistent with an infill agenda uh, housing uh, solution. Another solution is to take the reality, which is that housing are where jobs go to sleep at night, and solve for transportation. Now you think, oh my God, really high-speed rail? Well, no, of course not. In uh, southern Virginia or northern Virginia, uh, serving the D.C. suburbs, uh, highway authorities have long allowed uh, express commute buses to use breakdown lanes on the existing highway system. Just during commute hours, just buses. This is actually a solution that would help increase bus ridership decrease vehicle miles traveled, but isn't the heavy rail infill-only solution sought by um, the climate folks. The reason that's important is that existing facilities, existing breakdown lanes, can be repurposed for bus ridership uh, to get people in and out of uh, uh, work and to uh, locations they can afford to still buy homes, like San Bernardino. So there's no reason to end home ownership. There's no reason especially to end home ownership of the world's most 
green homes under California's green building codes and most environmentally protective homes under California's many environmental laws. We can build what we need to build for people to still own a home and pursue the American dream, but not based on the fiction that everyone is simply going to stop driving. We can help with commutes, and we should do everything we can to help with commutes today, not based on some highfalutin choice to be pursued in 30 years like high-speed rail. The third solution really is to just stop the endless wrangling by consultants, lawyers, agency staff, politicians, over every single housing unit that has to be built. We have to let housing happen as the environmental benefit that it is. It's terrible for the environment for people to have to move to Texas and triple their greenhouse gas. It's terrible for the environment to have to people have people become homeless because they can't afford any housing at all. These are terrible for the environment. We need to realign environmental law so that it's not an impediment to housing. It actually encourages the world's greenest housing. And that's not complicated except for politics. And we haven't had political leadership on the issue to date, and I hope it's going to change. The case you filed in San Bernardino is much more focused on uh, on CEQA uh, than is the uh, Fresno case. And you're asking for some uh, very specific relief there and how CEQA is dealt with. Tell us about the San Bernardino case and, and what it alleges and is seeking in, on, on the CEQA issue. Sure. So um, uh, the California Environmental Quality Act was a bipartisan bill uh, passed in 1970 when Nixon was in the White House, Reagan was in the governor's shop, and the Brady Bunch was in its first run. It predates all environmental law that we care about today. It predates the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Coastal Protection Act. Everything that emerged post-1970 that has helped protect the environment didn't exist in 1970. So it was this kind of catch-all law, CEQA, that required a study of everything and then avoidance of adverse impacts to everything. And we had early Supreme Court cases that said CEQA needed to be interpreted broadly. That has resulted in decisions that the addition of a kid to a community, because the kid's going to go to school, is going to use the playground, that's called now an environmental impact. That's crazy, especially given the 1970 template that we started with in terms of our communities was itself the product of decades of racially discriminatory redlining practices. 1970 CEQA, that legacy redlining condition became the existing environment and any change to that existing environment up to and including just adding kids and houses for people to live in became a, quote, adverse change. That is not really where CEQA was intended to go. It's where it's evolved to. And it's evolved to that point in part because the state agency responsible for developing clear regulations for how CEQA is imposed in much the same way that the Internal Revenue Services is required to adopt clear tax regulations about how tax laws are imposed. But in CEQA, it's so politically fraught. There's so much ideology around it. We end up with regulations that say an impact to the environment is significant when it's substantial. And there's not a lawyer or an expert in the universe who will agree 
what either of those terms mean. When is it significant? What do you mean substantial? And in fact, we don't even have clarity in the regulations about what is an impact at all. We think that the same law that applies to all regulations, and it also applies to CEQA, needs to be enforced this time. That agency can't amend CEQA regulations with completely circular statements like an impact is significant if it's substantial. Let me give you a real clear example in the context of vehicle miles traveled. There are three things that the challenged regulations say about vehicle miles traveled in this example. One is a project that adds no vehicle miles traveled at all to the existing community is less than significant presumed less than significant, and therefore no mitigation or fees are appropriate. Well, what kind of housing would add zero vehicle miles traveled when you take into account construction as well as occupancy? There isn't a housing project in the world eligible for that presumption. Okay, so that doesn't work for housing. Then there's this non-regulatory, quote, guidance document that says, well, if a housing project on an apartment complex that is across the street from an existing complex has 15% less vehicle miles traveled, then it's less than significant. 15% less vehicle miles traveled than the apartment across the street. Well, you know what? That can't happen. People make transportation choices based on the transportation options available to them. The project that is already there is going to have its own vehicle miles traveled, and the project that will be built is going to look a whole lot like the pre-existing project. Okay, but what we do for sure have is locations like San Francisco, where we know people drive a lot less, or coastal Los Angeles, where we know people drive a lot less. Why? Because they live closer to their jobs. And then places like San Bernardino, where we know they drive a lot more because they live further from their jobs. So part of the overall solution, obviously, is to bring more jobs to San Bernardino, but that's complicated for other reasons not focused on in our lawsuit, but we support that agenda. However, instead of saying 15% BMT reduction to a regional BMT average, so if you add more housing in Beverly Hills or Santa Monica, that housing is going to be have fewer vehicle miles traveled than housing added to San Bernardino, the regional job shed. Instead, the state agency that's supposed to implement with clear regulations the California Environmental Quality Act said, well, a city can choose either 15% below the city average VMT or 15% below the regional average VMT. Well, those are entirely inconsistent. 15% below the city VMT is yet another reason to say no to high density or even apartments uh, at a low density level in Beverly Hills because the people who live there are going to travel there the way everybody else does. You can't get 15% below Beverly Hills VMT average with new housing. And so Beverly Hills can say, we don't want this new bad adverse impact, 15% below the city average. On the other hand, if you said our goal overall as a state is to reduce vehicle miles traveled, You'd say, Beverly Hills, you have to take this housing because otherwise housing is going to go to San Bernardino where there's more VMT. You'll have an overall decrease in VMT by locating housing in job-rich areas. Maybe Beverly Hills is not the right answer. Maybe it's Culver City or Palo Alto. But the 
real story is if you locate more housing near jobs, people should drive shorter distances. They're probably still going to drive. Some may be able to ride the bike, but probably they're going to still drive. And that's a good thing if your goal is to reduce VMT. But the state didn't require consideration of regional averages. They threw it up in the air and they said cities can make a choice. And it's not even clear what the environmental impact of this choice is. If you're in an electric car, why does it matter if 4 or 14 miles? But the truth is, these are completely unknowable and therefore highly litigious and litigable issues in CEQA. I do want to ask you... Uncertainty into CEQA, you get more litigation and less clear outcomes, which make it easier to block housing. But one of the things that's interesting, you mentioned electric cars. There appear to be parallel policies that are being proposed to deal with with climate change in terms of vehicle miles traveled and the use of fossil fuels. One is the cutting down on by having jobs closer to housing uh, to reduce vehicle miles traveled. But another policy is to promote all electric vehicles. In a hypothetical world, if all vehicles were electric, wouldn't that deal with the vehicle miles traveled issue in terms of its impact on climate change completely? Well, that that should certainly deal with it if you weren't pursuing this sort of <laughs> incredibly xenophobic vision of climate change in California. And what is California has picked a greenhouse gas reduction strategy and a set of metrics in California, which people will on climate advocates will say requires every possible strategy to be used immediately. And only if that agenda is pursued, can we possibly meet California's GHG reduction goals. And those reduction goals, which, by the way, the legislature declined to adopt. (laughs) California's legislature adopted a GHG reduction goal of 40% reduction by 2030. It declined to make the 80% reduction by 2050 state policy. That's in executive orders. And those executive orders are what these state agencies are being powered by and only those executive orders. And what is it that you... California... What is it? I want to focus on the San Bernardino lawsuit to return this to the legal issues. Are you... Do you believe that your San Bernardino lawsuit dealing with CEQA will be a vehicle to deal with a great many of the problems you're dealing with? Are you seeking relief in that lawsuit that will deal with many of these problems? We're seeking to require CEQA in that lawsuit to not have a discriminatory redlining effect. We call CEQA the new redlining tool, not that new. And we're also seeking, if the goal is greenhouse gas reductions, uh, to not have greenhouse gas increase because California has made housing impossible to buy or even rent by California's workers. So we go to, Californians go to other states with higher greenhouse gas on a per capita basis and worsen climate change. One of the issues... We more importantly, last point, we more importantly simply want to return CEQA to the normal rule of law. If you have a reg, a regulation, it has to be drafted in a way that is not ambiguous, in a way that is clear, in a way that has plain language, in a way that has clear legal authority. You can't have the impact is substantial if it's significant or vice versa. That's not a lawful reg. We need to return CEQA to the world of law and the rule of law with actual lawful regulations. And so that's a main thing that we're looking for 
other than wiping out all these completely discriminatory new anti-housing uh, additions to CEQA. We want CEQA to be back to what it was supposed to be, which is protecting the environment as well as human health, and not become just this lawyer's dream for arguments about when something is significant or substantial or vice versa. We need clear regs. The state agency is legally obligated to give us clear regs, and they didn't do it. One of the things these lawsuits are doing and why this conversation is so important is because it illustrates the prices for various things. There are conflicts between civil rights laws and environmental policies, and they need to be explored. And regardless of one's views on policies, for lawyers, what's important is that these issues, because of these lawsuits and some others, are being brought into the courtroom where legal evidentiary standards can be used to establish what has happened and what the results are. A leader in bringing these issues to the courtroom has been Jennifer Hernandez at Holland and Knight and her client, the 200. Jennifer Hernandez, thank you so much for joining us today and for helping us to understand what are these very real conflicts, very real issues, often not discussed in the public sphere, but that you are bringing into the legal system, which will increase our understanding of what the true prices and choices are of what we do. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Howard. Daily Journal is very pleased to bring you not only this podcast, but also the opportunity to receive California CLE credit for having listened to it. If you'd like to receive one hour of participatory CLE credit for having tuned into this program, it's very easy to do. Just go to our website, www.dailyjournal.com. Go to our podcast library and find this episode. There you'll find a link to a short true-false test. Once you've taken that, one hour of participatory credit can be yours for a very nominal fee. We do appreciate folks that take the opportunity to receive this CLE credit as it helps us continue to offer this podcast to you outside of our usual paywall. In addition to CLE credit for this podcast, we have a full library of podcasts that have aired previous dates and those all have CLE tests attached to them as well. And also in the daily newspaper, we have a range of CLE offerings as well many attached to perspective columns written by our attorney subscribers. We hope you'll take the opportunity to claim the CLE credit that the Daily Journal has to offer.